Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. Today, I can't quite believe who's joining me on Open Book, the Hollywood icon, Barbara Eden. Now, the six-year-old Anthony would have been extremely fanboying right now. And so I'll tell you the 59-year-old Anthony is too. I may have aged, but not my thoughts and thinking and love affair with Miss Eden. Barbara is an incredible person. Not only is she iconic because of her talent and career, but how she coped with the loss of her son and tried to help others experiencing similar struggles. It's truly inspiring. Addiction is a terrible thing and something that's known to many of us. Barbara's strength, compassion, and empathy shines through in this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Joining me today on Open Book, and I'm just thrilled to have her, is Barbara Eden. She's an entertainment icon, legendary actress, but also an amazing author. I would guess about 10 or 11 years ago, she wrote a New York Times bestselling book, Genie Out of the Bottle. It was a phenomenal book. Barbara, I'll I'll tell you this about this book. I was in the middle of a divorce, frankly, and I saw your book in the bookstore and I was living in a hotel. And I said, okay, I'm going to buy this book. I want to learn about Barbara Eden. And uh, I want to embarrass you on my podcast, if you don't mind. You were my first great crush Miss Eden. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, w- I was watching you on WPIX Channel 11 in New York. I think it was like a five or six o'clock show in my pajamas. And I thought that mm-hmm. this was like the greatest show and the slapstick comedy. I thought it was amazing. But you you live such an a interesting, such a wonderful life. And I, I uh, appreciate you coming on today. I guess the first question I have is if you could take us back to your early life in Arizona before you go to L.A., and then what makes you decide that you're going to go to L.A. and embark upon this uh, acting career? Well, actually, when I left Arizona, I was two and a half years old, and my family migrated back to San Francisco. So I was raised in San Francisco, and I, I studied with Elizabeth Holloway Theater. I studied voice at the uh, Conservatory of Music in San Francisco. And when I was in high school, I started singing with the local dance bands. <laughs> of course, I had been studying opera, so it was, it was quite a change for me. And then I started doing theater around the, uh, the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. And my teacher of theater brought me into her office one day and said, Barbara, it is, uh, meanwhile, I was going to uh, City College, San Francisco. But my my uh, teacher said you don't you don't need that. You should go to New York or L.A. Get out of the nest because <laughs> I'd had a very loving family and uh, I wasn't I didn't really didn't really want to leave them. Uh, but I did come down to L.A. I stayed with an aunt and uncle for a while and then I moved to the Hollywood Studio Club. 
Well, I mean, you're, you're incredibly honest about navigating this world of Hollywood and the trajectory. Um, so you have this studio contract. You're a contract player at 20th Century Fox, right? You're also a, yes. a chorus girl. Now, uh, people my generation don't remember Ciro's <laughs> on Sunset Strip, but tell us about the legendary Ciro's, the uh, Sunset Strip Supper Club. What was oh, that like oh, back boy. in the day? Well, well, I wasn't there very long, Anthony. <laughs> well, they fired me. <laughs> but but uh, actually, when I first came down to L.A., I uh, was used to working and I got a job in a, in a bank at night. And I was coming home one night to the Hollywood Studio Club and another girl was coming down the stairs as I was going up. And she said, what are you doing out this late at night? You see, they lock the doors at the Studio Club. You couldn't get in unless you had a really good reason for staying out all night. And uh, I said, well, I was I was working. She said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm an actress. She said, where are you working? And I said, the bank. She said, what are you doing working in a bank if you're an actress? <laughs> and I said, well, it pays the rent, you know. And uh, she said, well, why don't you come up to Ciro's and audition for the chorus line? And I said, I I don't dance. I've never studied dance. She said, oh, that's okay. None of us do. <laughs> So I went up and I did get the job, but uh, I think I lasted about four weeks before they fired me. <laughs> but it was a fun thing. I mean, you described it. It was a, it was a fun oh. time of your life. There was a lot of excitement and a lot of oh, possibility, my. right? Oh, yes. I mean, you, you know, when you have Frank Sinatra in the audience or, or Sammy Davis Jr. or, oh, you name it, Dean Martin <laughs> in the audience. Right. Uh, yes, it was. It was. Although <laughs> I went... Uh, I went home every night. <laughs> well, okay, and okay, but now you've got this career going. You get a couple of decent acting roles, and you're now going to screen test for what's going to become I Dream a Genie. Well, Anthony, <laughs> before I went to Fox, uh, I was doing small parts, and then I I did a play, appeared in a play at the Laguna Theater, and I got pretty good reviews. So. I got the call from Fox to test. My agent got me the call. And that's how 20th Century Fox happened. Um, they picked up my uh, contract when I was working with uh, Lucille Ball. And that was that. <laughs> okay. But but if I remember correctly, um, you didn't necessarily think you were going to get this role because that you thought that they were going for somebody that was going to be more Persian in look or... Darker skin, <laughs> darker featured. Am I correct? Do I remember the story properly? Oh, yes. More Middle Eastern. More Middle yes. Eastern. And so you said, okay, yeah. I'm going to try out for this, but I really feel that this is going to be an unlikely outcome for me, right? And so the t- take us through what happens. Well, actually, Anthony, I was, uh, at that time, I'd left 20th Century Flocks, and I was pretty well known. And I was married to Michael Ansara, who was co-chiefs mm-hmm. on The Broken Arrow. And I was reading the variety and Hollywood Reporter and big articles about um, Sidney Sheldon and his new project. And they were testing, but they were testing every Middle Eastern beauty contest winner <laughs> in, the, in the world. And I, uh, I thought, well, that's not for me. And then my agent sent me a script about oh, four weeks later. I read it. I recognized what it was immediately. And uh, he called me and said, well, did you like the script? And I said, yeah, I think it's wonderful. I like the part. <laughs> and he said, well, that's good because they want you. I wow. said, what? 
I said, Wilt, Wilt Melnick was my agent. I said, do they know what I look like? (laughs) He said, I think they do because you just, the only way you can get the part is to go down and have tea with Sidney Sheldon at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel. So I did. I went down and I had tea with Sidney and we talked and he talked about, I think probably he knew writers I'd worked with. I'm not sure, but I think that's it because I got the part. I, I didn't test. I didn't do anything. I just got it. Okay, so now, but you have this. This is a fascinating time because uh, TV is going through a transition, right? We're moving out of the Lucille Ball era. You've got your com- mm-hmm. competing against Bewitched. You have other uh, situational comedies going on, but there's a real spirit of optimism in the country. We have the uh, the space program, and uh, Mr. Sheldon, as you point out in your book, he's a phenomenal writer. He he has a great turn of phrase. He understands slapstick comedy, but also just general, you know, plot sequences that can make people laugh. And now you get started. You're in black and white in the beginning. Tell us a little bit about the beginning days of uh, Dream Gene. <laughs> well, we were in black and white because I was pregnant. <laughs> um, and I guess they thought I'd die or something having a baby. Um you know, uh, I discovered I was pregnant the day the show was picked up by NBC. And uh, I called Sydney immediately and said, I have to talk to you. And he said, uh, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, no, no, no. I have to talk to you right now. So he was having dinner with uh, another uh, uh, writer. And I went over to the house and uh, Sydney took me into his office and, and said, uh, all right, you're pregnant. And I said, yes, and I can't do your show. I'm so sorry. I I was so thrilled. We had been trying to have a baby, and finally I was pregnant. And he, he... He was parchment white when I said this. And he said, oh, well, 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 don't worry. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you like that. And I went home and I thought that was the end of it. But uh, God bless him. He, uh, he really rallied the troops. And uh, I did the first 13 shows and then they took time off Mm -hmm. and we did it in color. And he, when you, of course, you know, you got shot from certain angles. So, you, you know, that you didn't look pregnant in the show. Oh, Anthony, I looked like a walking tent. No, I had, I, come on, come on. I had so many scarves and things on. You know what I love about beautiful women, if you don't mind me just interjecting, okay? They always are very hard on themselves. Okay, you know that you were arguably the most beautiful woman in the 1960s. You had this iconic show. You had this very famous thing. And I, I have a friend of mine exactly my age. I said, you know, I'm very lucky today. I'm going to get the opportunity to interview Barbara Eden. And you know what he said to me? He goes, Barbara Eden, I think she's the first person whose belly button I saw. I said, actually, no. I said, no, they didn't show her (laughs) belly button. And he goes, no way. They definitely showed her belly button. I said, no, you weren't watching the show carefully enough. Tell us about the belly button controversy. Seems crazy looking back, right? Anthony, it peaked out every once in a while. Oh, it did. Okay, so maybe he <laughs> yeah. is right. I'll have to go back and tell him that you told me that. It did, despite oh, yeah. the censors, right? It, it did peak out once in a while. Well, you know how that all started. Mike Conley, who was a, um, a writer for The Hollywood Reporter, used to come down on the set and he'd say, I don't believe you have one. And I'd say nickel a peak, which was very inexpensive at that time. So <laughs> and uh, he kept writing about it. And then it got caught, you know, caught up by stringers across the country. And, you know, Anthony, some women are known for their body. Some women are known for their great legs. 
I have a navel, <laughs> a belly button. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> but yeah, but it's amazing that it's fifty-five, you know, ish years later. We're still talking about your belly button. But but you uh, <laughs> the the outfit. Tell us about the outfit when you got to costume and they were ready to put you in your gear to play genie. What were your thoughts about the outfit? Oh, I thought it was lovely. Uh, we had a wonderful uh, uh, designer, and I'm trying to think of her name right now. Uh, she had worked with me before at MGM when I did ha- uh, the wonderful world of the Brothers Grimm, and uh, and I was I was so lucky that that uh, Sydney hired her. It was Gwen Wakeling, actually, was the designer, and uh, she asked me, "What's your favorite color?" And I said, "Oh, pink." At that time, pink was what I was thinking about. And so she did that. She used the color pink and uh, did a beautiful job. I I was very comfortable in it, even though uh, being active as Jeannie, I ripped a lot of trousers. I, I, I love this story. I, there's a there's a picture of you in the book prior to Jeannie. This is you with the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Ah, uh, yes. And you write about him in this book. And one of the things that you say, which, of course, I remember and I laughed out loud, that he had a magnetism about him, but you kept to your marriage vows. I literally think that's the quote in the book. I've got to go look and find it. Yes, it will. <laughs> so tell us about, before we get to Larry Hagman, I want to hear about Elvis, the king of rock and roll. What was he like, Bart? Oh, he, what? He was a gentleman, first of all. He was well brought up. He was the only actor I have ever worked with. But the minute I came on the set, he got me a chair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See that? You, you, know, remember, like, you remember those simple things, don't you? The small oh, things yes. that people yes, do? Yes, indeed. And, and lovely. Just lovely. He had his guitar. He had a friend with him playing the guitar. Who He said it was his cousin. And I didn't know until years later that it wasn't his cousin. But uh, his father was there. And uh, in between shots, it's quite when you do a, a, a feature film, the, the time between shots is quite long. They wait for the sun to come up. They wait for it to go down. They wait, you know, uh, with wonderful results, of course. So in between, uh, Elvis would play his guitar and sing. And it was uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time with him. He was a huge fan of my husband's, by the way. Uh, he, he watched uh, The Broken Arrow. He's, he told me, and I realized later when I was also headlining in Vegas, uh, what he meant. You, you just don't go out of your, your hotel room. You stay in it. And um, that's what he did. And he said that uh, Michael was his savior. And then he asked me about Hollywood marriages and uh, how did how did we get along? How did how did we deal with it? And I told him, I, I said, you know, it's it's our work. It's what most people go to an office every day. We have a work ethic and we do work, both of us. And we understand that it's not la la land to us. Right. Amen. Yeah, and no. he said, well, I'm a little worried because I've met this girl in Germany. And I, I really like her a lot, but I'm afraid about bringing her back over here and she can take the pressure. And I said, well, if you love her and you can work it out, that's great. But you know, Anthony, I didn't know how young she was when yeah. I was talking. Oh yeah, there's a very know? famous, right? He, he meets her. She's the, uh, 
She's the daughter of a uh, military vet. And, uh, yeah. you know, she's just in, in her, early, you know, starting to get mature. I will we'll say she's a teenager, right? 16 or 17 when he first meets her. She was beautiful. Yeah. yeah listen, I mean, I, I, I maintain this. So you, you guys never lose your beauty, Barbara. You never, you <laughs> once you have it and you've been blessed with it, you keep it forever. Well, she certainly did. I was with her a, a few months ago at, in Memphis mm-hmm. uh, for one of the many uh, things they have for Elvis. And it was the first time I'd ever met her. And uh, when I walked into the room, I said, yeah, I know you don't know me, but I know you. And I knew you before you ever came to this country. (laughs) (laughs) So we had a good laugh about that. Such a great story. So, all right. So I want to transition from Elvis to Larry Hagman. You write about him. You you're you know, he he was uh, he could be difficult on set, of course, but you had an unbelievable chemistry between you and and Larry. It was a huge part of the show and obviously you had such great fondness for him and you loved working with him. Tell us a little bit about Larry ha- Hagman. Larry was one of the most talented men I've worked with and we seemed to be on the same wavelength when we acted. There was no acting. We we were there. Some some parts are very difficult to play with. Some some partners in your in your scenes are 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 difficult to connect with. Larry never was. He's wonderful, wonderful. And I will say this: he he was a problem for a lot of people, but not for me. He's he was my good friend, and uh, it was <laughs> it was a challenge working with him because the people around him were were a little skittish. I'll give you one good example. I don't know if it was in the book or not, but we had a group of nuns come and and visit on the set. When I saw them, I took a deep breath and I knew something was going to happen (laughs) because Larry grabbed the the axe you have for the firefighters Mm -hmm. on the set Mm -hmm. and began jumping around and putting them hacking the floor with it Uh and uh, yes, and saying every foul word he knew. Every single one. I turned around and went into my dressing room because, and these were not just nuns in street garb. They were in full array. Sure. You know? so, I mean, it was old school. We were talking about the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. needless to say, we, we didn't have any guests after that. Yeah, well, he but he took the art seriously, though, right? I mean, he he was oh. uh, he was locked in, and uh, obviously, oh yes, charismatic, really good looking man, and uh, very funny. You had a great supporting cast, right? Oh my gosh, yes, and 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 later years, I, I was I appeared in Australia with him. I went to Germany and was uh, appeared with him. He he's um, he was wonderful, wonderful actor. Let's talk a little bit about Bill Daly. I know you were close to Bill. <laughs> Oh, Bill was more fun. He was what you saw on the screen was exactly what he was. And and they they did very well together, Bill and Larry. They worked well together. What can I say about Bill other than he was divine? He was um he was a little Dickens, really. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I I uh I watched a few of your interviews with Bill and Larry over the years. I think you you were interviewed by an Australian um media network a few years back and the chemistry that you guys share uh in the 1960s you shared together forever. So it's just a, just an interesting linkage of your personality. There's almost like a weird spirituality to it that you guys were so so connected. When you read in the script and I know Larry felt the same way playing Tony Nelson. When you read in the script that Jeannie was going to get married to Major Anthony Nelson, tell us about your reaction to that. Tell us the thoughts there. 
I thought it was the worst decision NBC made. It just wasn't right. He was he was an, uh, a human. I was not a human. I was not playing a human. Jeannie was an entity, and and to marry them, you can't do that. You can't. You, and besides that, it spoiled all the comedy because he knew she wasn't human. She didn't think she didn't think there were any barriers, you know. But uh, but it but it had a good run. It had five years. Yeah, no, listen. I think it, was, it killed the show. <laughs> yeah, listen. It was one of the great. It was one of the great all-time show, and I, it shows. But I think it, it caused the show to lose that fizzle. And I know you probably will remember the Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis in the in the show Moonlighting. They had that sexual energy and that tension between them. And then once it went over the cliff into a romance, that show also fizzled. So there is, you know, some of that kept kept the show going. And obviously, you, the both of you had uh, the, the correct instincts on that. So I want to I want to turn to your book. Is I want to I just set the scene for me. Uh, your book was very personal for me. Again, I was going through a divorce. And when I was reading the book, you know, unfortunately for my family, we have alcoholism in our family. We have drug addiction. You know, perhaps most families have this. You know, it's a good percentage of the population that have these issues. And you wrote a beautiful story about your life. But and it was very genuine. It was very authentic. And I just have to tell you that, you know, I gave the book to my mom, who's now 86. So she was probably 75 or 74 at the time. And the empathy and the and the compassion that you express in the book. And of course, we, you know, we, we learn about your son's death, your son, Matthew. Tell us a little bit about Matthew. Tell us a little bit why you were compelled to write about it. And I guess the message from me, Barbara, is that your writing about it was so helpful probably to so many people, including my family, you know, and I just want, I'm sure you're aware of it, but I just want to say that to you in terms of it was uh, important for the Scaramucci's, let's put it that way. You know, we read it and had a great amount of empathy, uh, having dealt with many situations similar to it. Well, I appreciate hearing that because that's the only reason I put it in the book. And mainly because I think so many people have this, this illness in their family, and they are ashamed to talk about it. And the only way I really helped Matthew and helped myself was being open about the condition and talking. And I, I was so surprised mm-hmm. at so much help that I received. So many people opened up to me and helped me mm-hmm. and took me to AA meetings, took me to Al-Anon meetings, found the right doctors, found the right hospitals, which unfortunately you need to know. Matthew was... Oh, gosh, the gentle giant. He was six foot four like his daddy. He was very sweet, kind, empathetic, not an angry young man at all, but got caught up in that era, I think, um, with, you know, high school, high school. We didn't even know high school. Uh, And I, I would like people to know that they should be alert. You know, if you're in a family that you're not used to drugs or alcohol or, you know, and you don't know the signs, but um, there are definite signs. And if you know the right people and you're open about it, you can get a lot of help. And some people, it, it really, you, you have a, uh, a resolution to it. Well, you know, it's just, so I'll share this with you. My, my older brother, uh, like your son, uh, started with cocaine in, I guess he was 16 or 17, Unfortunately, he has cycled in and out of that addiction over the last 40 years. Um, He's healthy now. He's sober right now, thank God, you know, and I pray for him every day. I guess what I would say to you, 
and I know you know this, and, and but a lot of people don't know this, which is why it's important for books like yours to be written and read, is that these are illnesses. You know, and if I had something wrong with my heart or if I had something wrong with my liver, we medicate that. There's no social stigma. But well, the illness of addiction, sometimes people think it's a just a behavioral issue. Well, of course, there's elements of that, but there's also a chemical issue related to this as well, where some people can try a drug and they, you know, have it one time or two times and they drop it and another person can try it and then it, it's a lifetime addiction. And, you know, you write so beautifully about him. I just w- wanted you to know uh, that it touched many people when um, when I had uh, reached out and, I, and I'll explain the story. I think you'll get a kick out of this. I was looking for something to watch. I have a nine and a six-year-old at home and I turned to them. I said, okay, watch this and tell me if you like this. And it was the first I Dream a Genie episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 episodes later, my, I, I, I said to my kids, I said, we're going to buy this uh, a genie bottle. Okay, we'll bring the genie bottle home. So I looked up on the, on the web. I think Mario uh, does these genie bottles for you. And so I, I, I bought a genie bottle off the web. He then contacted me and said, oh, by the way, Barbara and I like you. you know, you're like one of the few tr- people in the Trump administration we thought was actually normal. And I laughed. <laughs> and then I said, well, listen, I said, I, have a, I, I, I am very fond of her for so many different reasons, but I read her book 10, 11 years ago, and I would love to get her on the podcast. And uh, so my mom is listening, my uh, family's listening, you know, you are a, uh, a huge role model and an inspiration for, for so many people. Um, I guess I would, I would ask you this question, I hope you don't mind me asking this, uh, for families that have addiction issues, and you talk about recognizing the behavior and so forth, what are some things that you would say to families, you know, because again, Matthew, he had some success in rehab. He was getting married. Tell us some of the reflections, if you don't mind, and like some of the warning things that you think about or you would share with somebody. Well, actually, I I had remarried and uh, Matthew went to live with his daddy. He would come to me often and he was always fine with me. But I think there were were anger issues and uh, things like that. But, you know, you, you tend to say, oh, well, it's a teenager. Mm-hmm. This is the way they are. They're messy. They're, they're uh, wearing their hair too long. They're, you know, it's always in a reason that you really have to watch. As a matter of fact, I'd say you have to watch all the time, even middle school. You, you, um, but I didn't really realize something was wrong until he came to live with me. And he was supposed to go down to the college here in the uh, uh, San Fernando Valley. And uh, one morning I woke up and I noticed all his books were in his room. And I, I thought, oh my God, I've got to get down there. I grabbed his books, drove down to the university and said, I, my, my son forgot his, his textbooks. I, I, I'd like to give them to him. And he said, what is his name? I said, Matthew and Sarah. He said, well, no. He, he's not in the uh, directory. He wasn't going to school. Yeah, there you go. He was leaving the, leaving the house in the morning, and he was not going. So when he came home, I confronted him. And uh, whew, he had a huge, oh, he was so angry, so angry. And then finally, I called his father and uh, told him something's wrong. Something's definitely wrong. So um, we took him to... Um, some people Mike knew in the Valley, a doctor and a psychologist, and they have a group because we wanted to find out what was going on. And he opened up to them. He did not tell me, did not tell his father about the drug thing. And we went down 
and sat and had a uh, a meeting with Matthew and these men, and they they told us out and out everything he was using and doing, and he was furious. He was crying. You told me you wouldn't tell them. You told me you wouldn't tell them. You know, it was heart. Yeah, it's hard about the stigma, right? I mean, that was you know, I mean, that's, oh, that's part of he it. didn't right. Well, he yeah, he he really loved us, and we loved him. It was uh, he didn't want us to know. So that was his first. Then we sent him to a rehab in Minnesota, and uh, he was there for, oh, I guess a good six weeks. That was the first rehab, and the the journey went on. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you, Brian. I hope you, you know, I appreciate it. I, I, unfortunately, I understand the pain of losing somebody, and I just thought you wrote about it so eloquently in the book. Well, he made, he really tried. He, he, he fought the good fight, but uh, it got him in the end. You know, he had long periods of being um, sober and straight and off the drugs. But uh, he was he was going to get married. And uh, uh, then the police called us one night. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry in some ways of bringing it up, but I think it's important. You know, I did this uh, podcast with my brother, which I think about a half a million people have listened to now about his addiction. And I was actually in a airport, uh, walking in the airport, and there was a, a man chasing me. And I was like, uh-oh, he, he tapped me on the back and he said, hey, listen, I just want to thank you. You know, I'm in Narconon. And when I sometimes miss a meeting in Narganon, the podcast that you did with your brother describing his issues is very therapeutic for me. And I listened to it in lieu of going to a meeting. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, wow, that's actually really helping somebody. And this is uh, uh, super beneficial. So I I guess the message I want to leave you with, Barb, is that you have helped so many people uh, and perhaps many people that you're not even aware of by writing such a wonderful book and in many ways a tribute to your son. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's so important for people to be open and out of or out of the closet, <laughs> you know, just share what you have because you might be able to stop it early enough. If you if you can get a child in their teens and get it early enough, nine times out of 10, you'll be successful. But you have to recognize the signs. Amen. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey man, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears a little bit because there's something startling about your background that did surprise me. Are you a descendant of Benjamin Franklin? Because let me tell you something, Barbara Eden, you don't look anything like Benjamin Franklin. I mean, I've met people that look like Benjamin Franklin, but you're no Benjamin Franklin. Well, my grandfather was a direct descendant. His name was Charles Benjamin Franklin. Um, he was born in Pennsylvania during the 1800s. He was a lot older than my grandmother, but uh, that's, that's the connection. I have tried to find his uh, birth record because at the time it was called Butcher Town, I believe. I think Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. Oh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah. And there was a portion called Butcher Town, and he was born in that town. And his his mother was 
British, and his father, of course, was Franklin. Uh, one of the many, I guess. Um, but that's all I know about it. I've, I've tried. I've gone back and looked for it, but I can't find it. Pretty, pretty, pretty extraordinary stuff. So, so one of the things I do with all of my guests on this show is I bring up uh, five words, and then I ask the uh, the guests to respond to these words. Okay, so you ready? Uh oh. All right, here we go. You ready? <laughs> All right, let's start with uh, Lucille Ball. Wonderful, kind, caring, very helpful to me. And incredibly gifted, right? She was a commercial human being, right? I mean, she Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Talented, smart. Yeah. She understood the business and she was able to really make a fortune off the business. And they did some really smart things in their studio, yeah? Yes, indeed. And it was all her. And, 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 and amen. Amen. Uh, how about Warren Beatty? <laughs> well, <laughs> Warren Warren was is a wonderfully talented and great guy. Uh, I guess my first I I know what you read in the book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was doing How to Marry a Millionaire. That's where I first met Michael. And uh, Warren was uh, on, a, on a show, on a, a set nearby. I would go out to get a breath of fresh air from the big set. And he would go out and he'd say, I'm going to get you, Barbara, like that. And I would run like mad <laughs> because I, I was so stupid. I really was. I was but but he's, he's fun. He's wonderful. And he's talented. So I have a, a, a Warren Beatty story. I, I'm obviously, I was fi fired from the White House. Uh, it was invited to a dinner in Hollywood. And uh, one of my friends invites me to this, his home in Beverly Hills. And Warren is there. I have never met him before. And my friend says to me, yeah, I invited you to this dinner because Warren Beatty wanted to meet you um, because of your time in the White House and so forth. And I had a two and a half hour conversation with him. He was incredibly curious about the political system. And, uh, and he told me that uh, he had met Jack Kennedy, I guess, a week or so before he was assassinated uh, through the introduction of his sister. Um, but I was I was blown away at his political acumen. Actually, it just seemed like a, a, a very interesting guy. I mean, didn't keep a relationship with him, but it was a fun dinner for me. How about Marilyn Monroe? Let's go to Marilyn Monroe. Oh, beautiful, ethereal, uh, gentle, extremely talented. I uh, when I met her, I was uh, so overcome with how beautiful she was and how how sweet she was. You guys, a uh, bit of trivia. You guys, uh, you shared a stand standing together, right? <laughs> yes, Evelyn we did. Mor Morarity, right? Nice Morarity, Morarity. Yeah, uh, Evie was my stand-in for How to Marry a Millionaire, which was one of the first things I did at Fox, and um, I played the Marilyn Monroe part in that. Several years later, Evie and I were were Evie was my stand-in on uh, Five Weeks in a Balloon, the uh, and. Uh, Marilyn was working and Evie had been working with Marilyn when I didn't do a film, you know, mm -hmm. and Marilyn wasn't doing a film when she was, it was never a problem until five weeks in a balloon. And uh, we were into the, the film. I think oh, we only had a couple of weeks more to, to work, but uh, she came to me and I said, Barbara, she was from the East. I'm not sure where, <laughs> Barbara, I have to leave you, honey. And I, I said, what? What? You're leaving? And the, 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 we have two more weeks on the film. She said, oh, honey, honey, Marilyn needs me. And I said, Evie, I need you. And she said, oh, no, no, no. 
she really needs me. <laughs> like that. So, of course, she left. And uh, one day she came back on the set and said, oh, oh, what she used to say was my other star. Marilyn's my other star, you know, like that. So she, she came to me and said, Barbara, Barbara, I want you to meet Marilyn. And I said, I can't leave the set. Evie, I'm, they're working. She said, Just a minute. Now, I have to tell you something. Marilyn, uh, I don't, not many people know Ju- Junior Lemley, but he was a very, he did All Quiet on the Western Front. He, he produced that. And uh, he was her, her, her boyfriend. And so Evie knew everyone in town and she knew our, our crew, everything. She, she came back to me. She went over, talked to the uh, associate, came back to me, said, it's all right. Come on, honey, we're going to meet Marilyn. <laughs> so I went to the stage, this big, huge, black stage. It's so dark. And there was a little light right in the middle where the cameraman, uh, Jean-Louis, who was doing the, the costumes for Marilyn and the director were there in a little tiny dressing room. We walked over to that beautiful piece of heaven in the middle of this big black place. And Marilyn came out and did her, she was doing uh, costume uh, tests. And she came out and did her, turned around, did her costume test. And Evie said, Marilyn, Marilyn, I want you to meet my other star. <laughs> oh, that was me. You know, other star. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but when she walked over, oh, I was, I was just... I almost melted in a little puddle. She was so beautiful and and so so kind and good. I mean, she just uh, I don't know. Well, listen, we know what a shame. we know the legendary stories about Joe DiMaggio's love for her. You know, and I obviously had a chance to get to know Mr. DiMaggio when he lived here in New York. Um, and you know, well, I appreciate you sharing that. We've got two more. Okay, you ready? Let's go to Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Great sense of humor. Wonderful, wonderful person to work with. <laughs> he. He, uh, when I came, this is very early on at Fox, you know, when I did that. He, when I came on the set and we rehearsed, I was going, I was really <laughs> thinking, oh my God, this wonderful actor, what is he going to think? But I did this scene several times with him and uh, he said, it was such a pleasure to work with someone I could look down on. <laughs> because he was not very tall and neither am I. <laughs> and I said, thank you. And we, he, he was just wonderful. Yeah. All right. So this one is a little more obscure, not as well known, but to any I Dream a Genie fan, very well known. Hayden Rourke, who played Dr. Bellows, Alfred E. Bellows in the show. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Hayden. Oh, I loved him. I adored him. And so did everyone else. Uh, he was really the most grounding person on that set with Larry. He, uh, he was intelligent. He was very talented. My God, he did massive amounts of work before he ever worked with us. He, he was just a lovely, lovely man. And born in Brooklyn, you know, it's, it's interesting because he doesn't give off that aura, but he was a, he was a Brooklynite, you know. Fellow, I didn't fellow, know that. Yeah, he was. Yeah, October 23, 1910. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. That's the first uh, oh. years of his life there. See that? Well, you know, he did uh, a lot of Shakespeare, I mm-hmm. believe, in England. 
Mm-hmm. And he probably picked up that accent in England. Yeah, he, he definitely watered down that Brooklyn accent. But I, I found him to be the real uh, straight man, if you will, the real comedic foil in the whole thing, right? Didn't, didn't oh. make the whole show so enjoyable, Adorable. right? Adorable. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah his, his stunned, I know what's going on, but people will think I'm crazy if, uh, if I potentially admit to what's going on, right? <laughs> so, yes. So, so, so funny, so real. I want to I want to go to my last uh, two questions, if you don't mind, uh, and that is uh, the Harper Valley PTA. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, you say in the book that you sort of this iconic character Genie was one part of your career, but you sort of completely left that behind when you went and uh, became the protagonist in the Harper Valley PTA. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, it was a uh, I, I, actually a feature film to begin with. You know, I, I, I love doing it. It was a wonderful part. I love the song, uh, Jeannie C. Riley. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was a wonderful experience. I, I uh, And then they picked it up and made it a television series. And I, uh, I liked that, too. It was fun. It was a great part, a different part. But that's what actors do. You know, they act. Um, very cool. And you were on that show for a while. Uh, my last question for you is about the Genie revival. What were your thoughts on the Genie revival and Wayne Rogers playing uh, Captain Anthony Nelson? Well, it was great. Wayne was fabulous. I had worked with Wayne before, I think the same time next summer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I had on stage. And uh, he was he was very good in the part. It's very difficult to step into someone else's shoes. Yeah, no question. You know, and, and Larry wasn't able to do it because, of course, he was shooting Dallas. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, Wayne is a fine, was a fine actor and uh, a dear friend. So we were lucky to have him. I had the opportunity to, to do some television with him about 15 years ago. Uh, we were on set together. I think it was on Fox News, uh, Neil Cavuto's show. He could not have been a more gracious, nice person, incredibly smart business person. Um, well, Anthony, he, he ended up being my business manager. Oh, oh is that right? Yeah, so there you go. He, he, he yeah. had really good judgment on the stock market. We traded war stories, Wall Street war stories, and found interesting about him. Of course, he, uh, you know, he had to uh, replace Trapper John as well, right? If you remember, right? So he was a, a replacement on oh, Mash, I, was very successful, right? And then he went on to be uh, to do yeah, that with you. I remember. Well, he worked with my uh, my husband, Michael and Sarah, also. So uh, <laughs> I remember they were worried about him. Uh, it was a Western. Uh, Michael was doing Law of the Plainsman, mm-hmm. and they needed someone to be a, a buddy. Mm-hmm. And they loved Wayne's acting, but they were a little worried about his Southern accent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Southern accent sounded more New York to me. but <laughs> <laughs> To me as well, by the way. I thought he... Thought... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but he's a Southern boy, <laughs> uh, but uh, but it all worked out beautifully, and he was uh, great with Mike. Well, great, great, great fun. You know, Barbara, I can't thank you enough. Okay, I, I you you made my day, and and you know you made my family's day by coming on my show. Uh, the title of your book, which is uh, incredibly well received and a New York Times bestseller, is "Genie Out of the Bottle." Barbara, thank you again for joining Open Book. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I enjoyed it. I hope we meet someday in person. Well, what an icon and what an amazing legacy. And how about 91 years young, vividly remembering things from 50 or 60 years ago and how charming she is as a person. And you could feel from her, her spirituality. You could feel from her, her connectivity 
to other human beings. You know, sometimes when I am out public speaking and I'm being lambasted or excoriated or there's people in the room that hate me, I remind them, well, hey, guess what? There's a lot of me in you and there's a lot of you in me. And if you really think about our genetic differences, we're talking about decimal points of genetic code separate us from each other. And man, does Barbara Eden understand that better than anybody. So in addition to being perhaps one of the most beautiful people in the world, the Helen of Troy of Hollywood in her heyday, uh, she's just a wonderfully warm, down-to-earth human being. And she's experienced the trials and tribulations of life, and unfortunately, the great tragedy of losing her son with a level of dignity and kindness and compassion for others. And so she's truly an amazing person. I loved her book. I encourage you to go out and buy it. And I really appreciate you joining us today on Open Book. Hello? Ma. Hello? Ma. Hi, honey. What's going on? Are you ready for the show or what are you doing? Yeah. What? Wait, you have the show on? You're on TV? No, no. I got, a, I got you on the podcast. You ready? No, wait a minute. I got to get the other phone. This phone's going to go dead because it's been on the phone all day. You've been talking to your friends all day? Yeah. Can you call me back right away? Call me back right away. I'm going to put She just hung up on me. She's so nuts. Yeah, now it's busy. She's trying to call me now, so she won't. Okay, here she comes on the other phone. Yes, Ma. Okay, go ahead. Ma, I had on the show Barbara Eden. You remember her from My Dream of Jeannie or no? Yes, I do. All right. What did you think of her? I thought she was very talented. Yeah. Do you remember me watching it as a kid on Channel 11? Yeah, we all did. We all did. Yeah. I had a crush on her, Mother. Maybe that's why I married Deirdre, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's almost, that's exactly what Barbara, that was Barbara Eden's response. She was like, whoa. All right, so, Ma, she had a son that died of a drug overdose, okay? And she wrote right. about it in her book, which is- How old was he? He was 35 when he died. He had a heroin overdose. You know, that's like, remember somebody in our neighborhood died like that, right? So, right. Peter Janice's son died like that. Right. I do remember that, Ma. So, uh, so I mean, she was very honest about it. And she, you know, you know, it's a disease, right? It's not a, it's a not an, you know, it's a disease. People have to get treated it's for it. It's a disease. Yeah. It's an addiction. It turns out to be a disease. And, and you have triggers that make you take it. Mm-hmm. And you think you're going to feel better, but you feel worse. 100%. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's what happens, you know, and then you you keep taking it and then all of a sudden you don't feel anything and you're out, you know, you're moving on to the next world. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. But uh, what do you think of having the courage to write about it, though? That was pretty good, right? Yeah, well, I could write about it. I could write a book about things that happened to me and it would probably be the bestseller. I'd need a ghostwriter. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep you away from that, though, Ma, right? Maybe we'll publish it. <laughs> Maybe we'll publish it 50 years after I'm dead. OK, we won't even wait. OK, okay. Let, let me ask you this, Ma. Who was your first crush? Ricky. R- Ricky, Le- Ricky LaPera, who looks like Uncle Fester now. That's your first crush? No. Don't say that because no. he might be coming here. So. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So that was your first crush. The, My first crush. Yep. And, and what happened? Pop, my grandfather, he wanted you to marry him, right? Yeah. He yeah. didn't want me to marry who I married. And my father had a, was a snob because he definitely had money when we were kids. And he said that he had the same kind of upbringing that I had and, and that his father was a judge. And what the hell was I doing going the other way? All right. But he was right. You still, but look at you, you're 86 years old and you're still hanging out with Ricky though, right? Of course. <laughs> 
I had lunch with him yesterday and, and Catherine Chago and Richie Morrow. Right. And him and I, and we had a ball. We met everyone in the Port Diner. Where'd you have and lunch? They were all Port laughing Diner? because they all know. They say, oh, we remember him holding your hand walking down Main Street. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. This is too good, Ma. All right. So, can I ask you one last question about Barbara Eden? What? She's 91. She was right. she was very pretty when she was thirty one, right? Right. So, what's your thoughts on beauty, Ma? Is beauty timeless? It doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, Ricky still thinks you're beautiful, right? Yeah. Well, fortunately, I have partially the feel skin, and I don't have lines. You don't have lines. So you're eighty six with no lines, right? So you're looking pretty very good, right? Very few lines. Very few. How lines, old did yes. the people think you look, Ma? In the early seventies. In the early 70s. You like that, right? Does that make you happy yeah, when they course. tell you that? Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm very conceited. And I worked with faces for 10 years and I worked in the beauty parlor. So I, I'm very aware how people look. At 86, I can look at somebody and tell, tell you their flaws, which is a good thing if they want to know. But I can look at them and see what the hell's wrong with them by, by looking at them. And I'm 86 years old because I'm all there. Knock on wood. Yeah, right. I just, just it's just, a talent that I was born with, I believe. All right, I love you, Ma. Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk to David? Yeah, tell him I'll call him back. All right, I'll call you back, baby. All right, all right. I love you, Ma. Love you, baby. All right. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine oh nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.